0: everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the hockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. Jeff and I are not bringing on a guest and so we're going to talk some more puck kind of like the power play penalty kill episode that we did not too long ago and today we're going to talk a little forecheck maybe a little forecheck breakout because the two kind of go hand in hand but before we get into talking some hockey let's bring on that talent of the podcast Jeffrey Levecchio. Vex what's going on today man?
1: Forecheck, backcheck, paycheck, TOF. That was my life. <laughs> but it wasn't a whole lot of backcheck once I went to Europe. It was mainly <laughs> just like third guy high and try to just bury everything and stay in front of the net. <laughs> oh, no, I'm like doing that. well, man. I'm in, um, in Blaine, Minnesota. A, a blistery, cold Blaine, Minnesota. Stepped off the plane. One of the boys showed me his phone, and it said zero degrees Fahrenheit. Not a big fan of that uh when you don't wear socks and you got style and rolled up jeans doesn't really go with uh with, with zero degree weather but we got tier one playoffs here this weekend and uh pretty excited to get after it with the boys
0: how are your ankles feeling are your ankles cold
1: one of the other coaches chirped me right away he goes hey Max, this isn't weather for you and no socks <laughs> and the ankles showing." and i was like hey you are correct i would much rather be in warmer weather but excited to be here with my team and the boys and we're on, a, we're on a heater right now, so uh, it's a good time to be rolling into playoffs.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Who do you guys play?
1: Uh, we play L.A., and then, I don't know, after that, I just take a one game at a time. <laughs> I don't want, I mean, I, I, tell the boy, like, I tell the boys the way that I think, like, <laughs> you, it, it, it's a round robin. We, put, we got three games guaranteed. You can't think about game two or three. They don't matter. Like, we got to win all three to get out of it, probably. So it's like, all, there is only one game. You give everything in that one game. You save nothing. There's no other game. And then we'll go from there.
0: Is there any other game? I couldn't tell from what you just said (laughs) right there. Or is there no other game?
1: There's no other game. (laughs) The time is now. Cliche after cliche. Uh, Let's
0: go. You know what, man? It's amazing how quick the season goes by. Like... I'm uh I do the the Cornell colors for the TV games at Cornell and uh the fact that there's like 3 weeks left in the season and only 6 games and, and before the uh the ECAC tournament starts it's just I felt like that's just started yesterday it's crazy
1: Yeah, dude, I I totally understand. Like, I feel like my pros just left yesterday, and some of them are going to be home training in a month. Like, it's, it's, you know, two months. It's literally nuts. But, um, you know, that's why you got to enjoy every single day when you're playing because it goes by faster and faster and faster the older you get, and you will never get that time back. So you have to enjoy every day. And I tell that to the guys too, the kids all the way up to the NHL players I train. Like, it goes so friggin' fast. I still remember day one – On my college campus at Western Michigan and the seniors, we had a party and, you know, to introduce the freshmen to the team Um, and the seniors being like, don't blink, boys. Before you know it, you're going to be a senior. You're going to be in my spot. I wound up never even getting to to be a senior in that spot. So my time was even shorter. So make sure everyone, even if it's a bad day, it's never that bad of a day. Enjoy. Enjoy playing every day you can.
0: So true. Then pretty soon you're going to have two kids and a mortgage and all that kind of stuff, too.
1: Gee, Billy, I can't wait till I get to go to high
0: school. (laughs) Stay as long as you can. (laughs) Uh, It does go by fast, that's for sure. But um, let's get going. Let's get right to it. What do you think? Should we talk smoky? Yeah, baby. So we're talking about the four check. And as Jeff had mentioned, four check, back check, paycheck. That was, uh, that was your, that was your MO, man. Like you were big, fast, get on the four check. It was part of your role wherever you played. Um, if you can give maybe like one or two pieces of advice for, let's start with the F one on a four check. How about that? So you're the first guy in, you're the first guy in two things that are really important
1: f wheezy, F1. I, I was usually F1 because I wasn't as smart as the center I'd be playing with, and I was fast, and, and I had a good stick pressure once Hastings taught me how to do it correctly in juniors. Um, I think the most important thing is don't stop moving your feet. Too many guys as F1 want to go in and read and react, but that's not your – it, most of the time, that's not your role. Your role as F1 is to get in there as fast as you can and don't let that team set up. Don't let them get ready. Don't let them execute whatever play, quote unquote, or breakout they want to run. You want to get in there and disrupt. And the best two ways to do that are churning those legs and stick out in front of you, stick pressure. And possibly if you're older and smarter, steering them where you want them to go, not where they want to go. Because as you get older, you know what – breakout a team likes to run so then you want to kind of manipulate your forecheck to where you're making them do something they're not used to not accustomed to doing so moving your feet and really good stick pressure and angles i'd say are the top two things i would say are important for f1 at least i think
0: yeah, for sure. That steering aspect I think is so so big and trying to get them to go where you want them to go if you're able to do that. And, uh, and and a lot of that too, a lot of F1's job is is either easier or harder based upon the puck placement. So when you're chipping the puck in, if you can put it in a spot where the defense has to go back on a tough angle to go and get the puck – then it's much easier for F1 to be able to steer them to where you want them to go um, because then they're going to have to have a bad angle to to try and do what they want to do. So um, it even starts, as I asked the question, it even starts first and before that where where you're p- uh, placing the puck Pl- placement is like a huge, I guess, buzzword you can call um, in the higher levels of hockey.
1: Unreal. I love how you lobbed me up a softball. (laughs) Oh, by the way, you got to do something before that. But you were actually totally correct. And that's why I love this show, talking it out and thinking. Puck placement is so extremely important when you're dumping the puck in or chipping the puck. Like you want to self chip as much as possible to where you're getting it. But if you're in a situation where you have to dump it and you know, what's crazy. And I didn't learn this until my third year in the American league. When I got traded, the Panthers, I'm playing for the Rochester Americans. Chuck Weber was my coach and he was huge with dumping it to, to the same side of the ice as the bench. Whenever we were dumping it in, because like, You dump it into the far side, and then guys go to change and we come out onto the ice, if their D man didn't change and he goes to get the puck and their forwards are stretching. If it's across the ice from the bench, it's much harder to get your stick in a lane and, and make them pass around you. than if you dump it in on the same side as the bench, now your guys are coming off the bench. They skate to the middle, then re attack and use a good angle. Now you're forcing them to come up through the bench side where all the players are going to be. Cause they just came off the bench when you do a dump and change. And I was like, Oh my God, i have literally never thought of that and i've been playing pro hockey already for two and a half years so like a little thing like that can change a game and it, it's big time it's big time
0: is it a little thing from last night
1: so, oh that's- <laughs> check out twitter if you do not already watch his videos because they're amazing
0: uh that's really interesting
1: Yeah. And like, so if you're going to, if you're going to dump the puck, like probably the best play, if you're going to dump and change is rim it super hard from the far side of the ice around towards the benches. So it goes around the net towards the benches. So then when your guys are changing, they're almost skating right into the puck. And it's going to go by those D men that dump it in because they're usually sagging back. And, like, literally, I mean, the amount of times that you're going to get the puck back off that dump or you're going to not allow them to just fly the zone and rip it up that far wall, it completely changes the other team's breakout and, and messes with time of possession and, you know, quality passes and all those kind of things. That's
0: interesting. And how did it work when you guys did that? Like, is that something you did all the time? All the time. If you, if you were going. And did to it dump- work? Was it something that.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Like if you're, especially in the American league where everyone is, you know, an NHL quality player or, or close, like if you, if you put a, a good quality dump like that, it, it completely changes, you know, how that team comes out. Like I said, and and when we didn't do it, he, coach would let you know, it was a big deal to him. And it did, it did make a lot of sense. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Huh. I'm going to have to like, think about that more. I have yeah. to like tr- like try and watch it in a in a game or even draw some stuff up on the board or something just to like, to wrap my head around it a little bit because I've never heard that before that's really cool
1: no especially in the second period it's really big in the second period when you have the long change yeah then then it really plays a big role huh.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, here's another thing that um, people talk about with the four check, and uh, you know how dump and chase or dump and, like the word dump in is like such a no no <laughs> right now. Yeah, and, the only uh, kind
1: of dumps I like are in the bathroom. <laughs>
0: But, that, but it is a necessary part of the game. I think when you get to the older levels a little bit, um, it's uh, like you need to place the puck. Like we talked about, puck management, that's another like, huge buzzword. Um, it's really interesting because so many coaches use so many different words for quote-unquote dumping the puck because they don't want to say dump it. Do you know what, what, what are some words? Like there's a chip, there's a self-chip, there's place. And I actually heard one. I forget. I want to say it was Morsey, Greg Moore. Um, who's in Toronto and was, was a coach with the Steel? I think they used the word deposit, deposit the puck somewhere, um, which I thought was interesting. I think Adam Nicholas might have even said that on one of our uh, podcasts and he was on. But have you, like, what do you think about that kind of verbiage?
1: I'm trying to think. I, I feel like you used all the ones that I've heard. Um, but you know what I do like? And I, I can't remember if we've talked about this yet or not, but I do like when teams come up with their own verbiage yeah. because it's part of their culture and it becomes something special to them and that group. Um, and it just makes sense. And also, if you're on the ice, if you're out there yelling, dump it, dump it, dump it, everyone knows you're going to dump it. But if you yell, you know, whatever your team's verbiage is for dump it, maybe the other team doesn't know that you're going to, to dump it. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Okay. I just I just said dump it like sixteen times. in a row. <laughs> I know you did.
0: What a bad question. All right, yeah, let's uh, yeah. let's move on. Let's, moving on. <laughs> Actually, part of that verbiage though, I think verbiage is really important because I do I do agree it can uh, reiterate your culture. And one of the pieces of verbiage that I think is really important, as we were talking about with F one, is how how like what's the role of F one and how do you get across? So some people will say like be relentless. Some people say hunt the puck. Some people say hound the puck. You know what I mean? What What are some other things that you have heard that you might be able to tailor to your team? Or are those the ones that you, uh,
1: you've heard as well, too? I literally think those are the three <laughs> that I probably would have said. Relentless, hound the puck. What was the other one you said? Hunt. Be a hunter. Hunt the puck. Like – yeah. Like you're going hunting. Like you're, you're just, you're nonstop. You're not moving. You're, you're the energy guy. You're getting after it. Like I, I think he used all the ones I can't think so of So let me,
0: let me ask you this question because this is actually a, a really good debate question when it comes to F1 and the four check. And that is you have your more old school type people that are like, finish your check. F1 should always be finishing their check. And then you have some more of the new school people that are like, why finish your check? Just get back, like get back hard and start, tracking back and back pressure, the puck, where do you fit in that, uh, continuum? Let's call it
1: phenomenal question. I love that you asked this question because you're right. Old school people are like, why aren't they finishing their check? But as a guy who, in the beginning of my profession, junior college professional career, in the beginning of the pro career, I had to finish my check. If I didn't finish my check, I didn't have a job. It was my job to like try and hit people You know, in my head, sometimes I was thinking, I got to hit him so hard, I want to hurt him. Like, even though I probably never did because I didn't have great balance, but like, (laughs) it it was always you have to finish your check. And then, you know, we got, we had Chase Berger on last season, I believe. Yeah. When he was the captain of Penn State, and their coach almost never wants them to finish a check which is, you know, very different for college hockey. And that was kind of a newer thing. And I was literally watching highlights today in my gym while I was working out from last night's games. And I was watching, I believe it was Minnesota. And a guy was like three steps away from the D-man as he passed it. He stopped, turned around, sprinted back the other way, didn't finish a check. And I was like, hmm, like, you know, it got got me thinking. So it's weird that you asked that. I think it's very situational. I think it goes to who is the D-man you're playing against, And this would be at the higher levels. Maybe junior guys can think this fast, college and pro. If it's the best D-man on the other team and you're within three steps, I say blast him because – He's going to be thinking next time, oh, that F1 is going to come and hit me. And maybe because he's that best E-man, it's like an Eric Carlson. He's really good at moving the puck. He's exploiting holes. Maybe now he gets a little bit scared. He hears footsteps. He doesn't. He's not able to make that really, really good play. And he makes his 2A pass instead of his 1A pass. So I think knowing who you're forechecking is probably a good idea. And then I think a simple rule is probably like if you're within stick length, maybe finish your check. If you're not, don't. If it's the third game in three nights, maybe don't finish that check because you're tired. You know, I I think it kind of goes into, like, what's your energy level? What's going on in the game? Is the game 5 nothing? Why finish a check? No point in wasting energy or hurting yourself, whether you're up or down if you think you got no chance of winning i don't know i think there's so many different factors that would probably come into that team culture um who the, who you have on the ice you know do i want my first line guy running around wasting energy when i'm going to need him on the power play all night and i need him to score it is a really good question what's your what are your thoughts
0: yeah, I think it's definitely situational. Um, there is a – and this is something that's really important on the forecheck too is making sure that whenever the puck goes away from you, you're always hard back through the middle of the ice, taking back the guts of the ice. I think that's a, that's a staple whether you're F1, F2, doesn't even matter. Um, coming back through the middle is important. It's funny. I think a lot of professional uh, people at this juncture right now, this is a question that is really – interesting because you have different opinions in terms of, you know, it was the, I feel like it was old school and then it went a little bit more new school. And then the blues just won the cup by just absolutely blasting people and playing physical. And so teams and general managers are like, okay, do we build our team to win in the regular season to make sure we get in the playoffs? Do we build our team to be playoff ready? And so, I think in a one game in the regular season, do you necessarily need to hit that guy? Because why do you hit him? It's to, to wear the other team down. That's a big part of that. And can you do that in one game when you're not going to play that team the next night? That's I think that's debatable. If you're in a seven-game series... And you know that every hit counts. Every time you lay the body on that Eric Carlson or whoever, that defenseman, uh, and you're going to get them for at least three more games and probably more, then they will definitely know when you're on the ice and it'll cause them to think a little bit more. So the situation when it comes to that, I think if you're at least two stick lengths away, it's, it's useless to To finish your check, if you're a stick length away, though, because I think if you watch a game, and and I do this sometimes, because there's not a ton of hitting in in the game anymore. It's there's not a ton of it. You have your role guys in, tro, in pro, not an amateur. In yeah. an amateur,
1: it's like way more than <laughs> I remember, at least when I watch. Yeah. Like when I watch my 16th team, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So like in in the pro game because there's not that much hitting anymore, you kind of notice it a little bit more, or at least I do when I'm watching the games. And I feel like if there's a chance to get a hit and it's, if there's a chance to get a hit on a guy with the puck where it means something, I feel like there's a turnover a lot of times, a lot, a lot, a lot of times. So I do think that there is a place in the game for hitting in the right way and at the right times. Um, not all the time. If you're, far enough away and like you had just talked about but um, just ask defensemen though I think that's a big thing ask defensemen any defenseman if you're going back to get the puck if they want to get hit 100% 100% of them will say no.
1: <laughs> so That's yeah, probably the scariest thing in hockey, going back for a puck with the guy on your back, knowing he's going to try and blast at you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And even forwards nowadays with the way that teams are playing in the neutral zone, a lot of times there's, there's a defenseman that's really, really gapped up. So a forward's going to have to go back maybe to be that support for the defenseman going back to get the puck. So they have to be ready at some junctures to shoulder check and maybe take a hit too. And that's not a fun thing. And especially in a seven-game series, like when the puck's going back behind your heels and you got to go retrieve pucks and you know you're going to get hit that takes a toll on you mentally
1: yeah and i think too like like you said we, we've said you know situationally i think if you're a fourth line guy you're still pretty much every level you're an energy guy like you have to know what your role is that night doesn't mean that's your role forever but what is your role in this game you're playing in tonight all right i'm on the fourth line I'm probably not going to be playing with guys who are looking to score. The team doesn't need us to score. If we do, obviously, that's awesome. We always want to score. But you got to bring that energy. We want to keep the puck in their zone. We want to wear them down. We want to make the game boring for them. We want to hit them. So there, if you're that fourth-line guy, maybe even a third-line guy, I think you're hitting guys. But do I want my best player who's making $8 million, $10 million a year, risking full-speed contact all the time? Honestly, probably not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And what about and any? they're also probably not hitting as much because they have the
1: puck. Those those better players, too.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're dumping the puck in, that means you don't have a better option. <laughs> you know, yeah. So your skilled players more naturally are not going to forecheck as much as the players who don't have the creativity or the sense to be able to make those plays within the neutral zone. So yeah, knowing your role. But I think it's really important for everybody, especially at the youth levels, to to understand how to do it. Uh, maybe when you get to like bantams and midgets, because at the end of the day, like you talked about with roles you 're going to have to earn your roles there 's very few people that play a first or second line role at every level that they play at a lot of times you 're kind of starting from the from the fourth or the third line, maybe as a rookie when you do get to the junior level and you got to work your way up and then you get to college and maybe you're not a first or second line guy, work your way up, get to pros. So the more you're better able to understand those types of intricacies, uh, throughout the four check, I think the better off you're putting yourself in a position to earn, you know, earn a role uh, on a team because you can't be one dimensional. You have to be two dimensional if you want to get to the next level.
1: Totally agree. And I would even say you should be three or four or five or six dimensional. The more dimensions you can play in, (laughs) the more useful you are to your team but like i know i'm joking but i'm also being serious like I, and we've talked about this before i think kids should be playing every position like up until i don't i don't even know what that age should be if I'm a, like a youth youth coach, like a little kid's coach, eight, nine, seven, eight nine, 10, 11, probably even 12 and 13, I'm having them play every single position. Cause I want you to see every vantage point of the ace. I want you to learn how to play every role possible. So if you go to juniors later in life and, and you're the 13th forward and you're just trying to get in that lineup and a D man goes down, Hey, you know what? I played D growing up. I could try and go back there. You never know. You become more useful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we used to do that in Chicago when we play against teams like the St. Louis Blues. I knew you were going to We'd be that. up like five, six, nothing. And then Stan would be like, all right, uh, Topher, guys, you're on defense now. <laughs> Everybody switch. <laughs> and
1: by the way, you just brought up Stan. And for the newer listeners, if you haven't listened to our early episodes, we talk about Topher's youth coach, Stan, a lot. For our older listeners, and I know we have a lot of those for, that have been with us from the beginning. If you still want us to get Stan on, a lot of people are asking yeah, us to get Stan on. Yeah, we got to get Stan on. Like throw a comment on Twitter where we post this or Instagram or message us or whatever because a lot of people are asking us to get Stan on. We didn't talk about them for a minute. But if any of you want us to get Stan on, shoot us a message so we know. Use
0: Or just put it on social media and use the hashtag Stanimal. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the Stanimal. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's move on because uh, F1, obviously we talked a lot about that. I think F2 is a fascinating person on the forecheck because I feel like F2 is really the person that is making the read depending on whatever forecheck you're doing, whether you're doing a lock type thing, whether you're going hard 2 on 2 whether you're doing one two two, The F2 is the one that really has to have the hockey sense to be able to read what's going on. So let's put yourself in your forechecking shoes now. Give me, give me one or two things that are important for an F2.
1: Um, I, I'm not kidding. I literally was almost always F1 my whole life <laughs> <laughs> I mean, always because I would just tell the boys, like, I'll go, I'll always go. I'll try. Cause I'm always trying to go for breakaways too, but I'll just always <laughs> go cause I'm fast and I don't really got to think you just hound the puck like we talked about, but I'm going to do what you did against me or to me. Like F2's job is much, much easier. If F1 steers correctly or, or even just, I don't even want to say correctly. If you, check at some sort of angle where f2 can read okay he's trying to push them to the right or he's trying to push them back or to the left that makes f2's job so much easier to read and react on and anticipate so f2 and f1 need to be kind of connected in their thought process and and talking and in practice but yeah i mean it's pretty much just like where do i think he's forcing them to go and then usually it's okay he's forcing them out of the net to the right i'm going to the right to go go grab the half wall or the d to d pass
0: like that like that yeah i think what's that
1: usually i'd say
0: Yeah, I think the F2, I think there's two big reads that F2 has to be really good at. One is reading the pressure of the F1. So again, just like you talked about, where's the F1 steering them? How much pressure does F1 have on them uh, and stuff like that? And I think the other one is being able to, while doing that, reading the other defensemen too. So what's the other defenseman doing? Is he dropping off to, to get a D-to-D pass? Is he going back to the front of the net to get a reverse? Um, so I think if you're able to to really... And the F2, I don't think always has to be so aggressive. The F2, I feel like, is more of a thinker and has to think it out a little bit more. And then you you flirt with things based upon time of game. Are you up a goal? Are you down a goal in the third period? So you're a little bit more aggressive. So there's certain things you can do to flirt with that. But I think that person's ability to read the pressure of f1 so like knowing when to be aggressive if you can be and then reading what the other defensemen are doing i think those are two things that are really really important
1: yeah totally agree and something that i would say that i notice a lot in youth hockey versus more structured and higher level hockey juniors and above is f2 in youth hockey gets lost a lot he kind of gets too close to f1 which then negates his ability to try and anticipate a read because he's just kind of like following f1 and if f1 gets beat which usually f1 does get beat like your job is to try and steer him. then now they've beaten they've beaten two guys yeah so you don't want to be up his hoop you want to be at least a little bit back so you can read and react and you know assess the situation if you're looking <laughs> for the corner or they don't got a d back or whatever
0: yeah yeah you know the f2 i think is better off being more patient because like you said it's very easy to beat two people with one pass. If you have two guys that are, whether it's a rim or whether it's, you know, hit in the middle or even D to D, I think it's, yeah, I, I totally agree. The other thing that's really interesting is, uh, so Dustin Brown's a guy that's from Ithaca right around this area. And he's somebody known for being pretty good on the four check. So he was around when I was coaching at Cornell, uh, in the summers every once in a while. And, uh, so I remember we were asking him once about what he was thinking on the four check. And he even talked about as the F two, like, which hand is the defenseman that has the puck? So you can shade which way, because the D, they always want to go to their backhand side, or not to their backhand side. They're always going to want to go to their forehand side. That's just kind of natural. So reading what hand is that person, and then you can you can almost anticipate that that person will probably want to go that way and then shade a little bit to that side. Uh, so that was just I thought that was really interesting. just a just a little pro trick of the trade.
1: It's so true, and actually, in, in I'm, I think Hastings in Omaha probably taught us this on the penalty kill, and this is probably why I wound up being a very good penalty killer, is because he, he's instilled that chess over checkers uh, mentality and forcing them to go where I want them to go, not where they want to go, and a big thing was on the penalty kill for check at least, always try and force them out of the net on their backhand always yeah. every time do not let them come out on their forehand it's much easier and if then if you take that in as a, as the f1 it's again they're gonna it's gonna be a harder play for them to make it's just like why do you have your stick on the ice in the in the defensive zone on the penalty kill or whatever because it's harder for them to make they can't make that just nice easy pass on the ice maybe they got a sauce it, maybe now it bounces same idea you want to make it harder on your opponent and not easy on them
0: yeah, yeah, and I think one thing that you can do too in doing that, especially with an F two, is always, I shouldn't say always, but a lot of times going from the inside out, so from the center of the ice, taking away the guts of the ice, and trying and forcing them on an angle to go towards the wall, because uh, that's where the skill plays happen. The skill, well, I shouldn't say that's where the skill plays happen, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of times, really nice plays happen through the middle of the ice uh, that will lead to offensive chances. So if you're able to take away the middle first. Using your stick, steer into the outside. That's that's something from an angling standpoint. In drills, you can do a lot, even in practice. It's a it's a good habit to have.
1: Totally. I mean, it just makes sense. Where's it easier to score from, the middle or the wall? Obviously, the closer you are to the middle, the more options you have as a shooter. So, you know, just that goes all the way down the ice. You all, I mean, we're always taught you always want to keep them on the middle. D-men, stay between the dots. Don't get outside the dots. That's when you get crossed over to the middle and you look like a donkey. <laughs>
0: you say it was funny you said the uh what did you say the wall or the what the, or the mid- middle i don't know i was I thinking know. Lil john there the window or the wall oh <laughs> my god you're ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> the window.
1: Yeah, you know what i'm drawing a lot of parallels as we talk right now between four checking and penalty killing like you're saying keep them out of the middle force them to the wall take away the guts when you're coming back on the back check it's like everything i always thought of on the penalty kill and i tell my teams i always tell them like okay we have four guys talking about the penalty kill we have four guys they've got five they're gonna probably get some shots would you rather them shoot from the middle or shoot way closer to the wall. So if they wind up on the wall, instead of lunging after the guy, now opening up a seam to go back up top where they're shooting from the middle, maybe every now and then you let them shoot from from the wall. Let them shoot from outside the dots. If you've got a good goal and you trust him, they shouldn't score from there. Kind of the same idea with the forecheck. You can go too hard as F2, but going slower and being more patient and taking away the middle probably would be a better error than than going too hard and getting ahead of the play.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right, let's move on. I feel like F3 and the defense are kind of intertwined. So maybe like F1 and F2 are intertwined based on what they're doing, and then F3 and the D are intertwined. And I feel like when we were growing up... F3 was a little bit more aggressive and the D were a little bit more passive where I feel Definitely. like in today's game, it's almost the opposite where the D are really getting up on their gaps. And I, I feel like a lot of, um, high level coaches, they, they hesitate to use the word pinch. A lot of them use the word gap, like gap hard or gap aggressively. Cause that's just sounds a little bit better and, and less almost like a loose cannon, yeah. Um, but I feel like now um, the D are up and, and pinching, gapping up, however you want to call it, and the F3 is a little bit more reading what the D are doing and, and staying high as opposed to back when we were playing, it was more the F3 was making that read and getting up on the wingers and stuff like that. What would you say to that?
1: I mean, totally, but also your first two years of in the USHL – and my first year in USHL, there was two-line pass. So oh. D could pinch the- out of you. It was terrible. That's why I sucked my first year because I was so used to playing with St- Paul Stasny. He'd get the puck. I would just sprint as fast as I could. No two-line pass, breakaway goal. was a hero. Again, what's up? But... When first year USHL, for me, it was two line pass. So you could never jump behind the D. You could never take off. D men were always pinching. But after that rule changed, which, you know, everyone knows now, is everybody too also runs, or a lot of teams run the three high kind of interchange between the third forward who's up top and getting lost and diving down in the D and rotating. So it kind of just goes into also now the four check. When the other team gets a puck, D-Man will go, 4-check, or uh, F3, you're coming right behind that D-Man. And now you essentially become the D-Man until you can kind of re-rotate and he comes back in the middle and you're kind of floating around.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, when we were, like, it's not even that long ago. Like When you talk about a one two two, the 2 the, the reads of that F3 were very interesting. And you had, like, a lot – you can either do, like, a lock where you lock on the winger or that F3 is a little bit more aggressive and he goes. But now the F3, it's almost like a lot of teams, they'll have the F3 come through the middle of the ice, like you were talking about. And the D, now they're responsible for the wings and they're, they're getting up depending on which side the puck is, is coming out on. So it's, uh, I, I actually, that's tough to play against. Like you're a winger, when you have a D that's always up on you and always gapped up and taking away that passing option, like that's, that's not easy as a winger to play against. You have to win wall battles. Uh, you have to be able to shoulder check and use your body and body positioning to be able to get the puck and get the puck out. Um, it's, it's a little bit uh, more aggressive and a little bit more risky, but still, if you're able to keep the puck inside the zone and extend offensive zone plays and cause turnovers and just hem teams in, there's nothing, and there's nothing tougher than that, and it can just kill momentum so much.
1: Yeah, it's so annoying. And, I, and I'll flip the script and go from the other side because it's something I'm always telling our forwards. When, it, when a D-man is pinching in like that all the time or diving down or staying gapped up, I start saying, like, if they're going to come like that low on you, like, do the opposite. You start going. Go towards them, and if they back up, keep going towards them. Because now you've created a pocket of ice where hopefully your one of your players will jump into if the puck gets free. And now they have a little more time and space. And conversely, when you go up there and you're that and you're like you're kind of going into the D versus the D men coming down on you. I call it reverse pinching. So if the puck comes up to you and that D man is really gapped on you, now you want to try and get it turn, make a play. It's really hard. Like you said, it's very hard. You get hemmed in, but if you're that winger and you know, the puck's coming to you, but that D man's close. If you sprint right at his chest and kind of go through him and you pinch him first, it's no D man, especially younger ones have any idea what to do. So all you got to do is like run at them pre-pinch hit them turn your body as the puck's coming and just try and chip it out or stop it in your feet and then you can make a play to your center because that d-man has no momentum to come and hit you because you're into him so just something to think about on the flip side for uh, wingers
0: yeah and ooh, very good transition in terms of flip because that's also why you're seeing so for everybody that likes to watch the nhl The reason why you see so many teams flipping pucks out now is because those D are taking away those wingers' options, and so what coaches will say is like, okay, just make the safe play don't try to don't try to be cute with the puck inside the zone just flip it out and then have the wingers just just go because not only is that the safe play you're not passing it to somebody uh, inside your zone with a chance for a turnover but also it puts the other team on their heels a little bit too if you do have your wingers flying a little bit it's creating space underneath and it's uh it's putting the other team on it on its heels too
1: yeah, totally. And how hard everyone knows you can skate faster forward than you can backwards. So if that D man is up on you and he's facing, you know, your net, but now the puck gets flipped out and you're facing his chest you got an advantage. You, I mean, hopefully you might beat them to that puck and now it's a breakaway or a two on one or something too. So um, yeah, we practice like that high flip pro dump type thing all the time in practice. And it's fun to try it too.
0: Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I used to think that the flip was like an unskilled play, I would always want D to, like, make a play, like a tape-to-tape pass inside the zone. And I still think that's the better option And for younger kids. I still think you should try and do that, like, 100%. But I also, when you get a little bit older, that being able to flip the puck, that is a skilled play. And if you're able to add that to your repertoire, like, you'll see NHL guys, like, legitimately – try and flip the puck out or go glassing out if you're like a fourth, fifth, sixth defenseman in your skill practice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a highly skilled play to be moving and do that pro flip and have it land where you want it to as a four checker. And not ice it. Yeah. Yeah. and, And it not be an icing like that and not, you know, nobody's going off sides. That is a highly skilled play. It takes a lot of timing, a lot of skill, a lot of coordination. It's yeah, it's definitely a skilled play.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And yeah, I, I used to th- I used to hate seeing that. Uh, like not necessarily at the pro level because it's a necessary part to the game with the stuff that we're talking about but I, hate to see, I hated to see it at the youth level but I think I'm walking that back a little bit because I do think you can teach that to be a skilled play if you're telling a kid to go glassing out all the time like smack yourself in the face <laughs> tell them to make plays um, yeah. but I, I do think that there's a time for it and if you're able to do it I, I do think it's a little bit more of a skilled play now
1: yeah, I'm not talking about glassing out. I'm talking about, like, making it a pass, but it's just an aerial pass. That's what we call it, an aerial pass. There you go. Um, yeah, that's, that's like I said, that's a highly skilled play, At least yeah. you know, in the way we're talking about it, not just being a donkey.
0: <laughs> yeah, so another thing I want to talk about that uh, I actually get questions, and I did an Instagram Live uh, about this a little bit ago, and that's Locke. So people are asking, like, what's a lock on a four check? Did you ever do any type of lock in any of the four checks of the teams that you played?
1: yeah on a lot of the younger teams i played on and i think we did it in omaha for a little bit at one point maybe when we were struggling and it was always the left wing lock i don't know why maybe because it's like an alliteration kind of left lock i don't know it's i guess it's not there's a w in there but um it was never the right wing lock for us anyways it was always left wing lock so left winger you're gonna go up you're gonna lock the right winger i loved it when i was a kid because it took all thinking out of the game it's this is my guy just stand next to him <laughs> so it made it super easy for me when the game was still fast for me um but it's very boring to play when you're the left winger. that's for sure
0: it's uh so we did that my four years at cornell really oh yeah but it was great
1: i mean you take a guy out you make the game for him.
0: it's aggressive it's a great aggra- I, I disagree man i don't think it's boring at all it is for one it's f- for one that's what person. i was saying
1: I was a left winger. I hated it. I loved it, but I hated it.
0: Yeah. So it's uh. So we used it to perfection. I mean, we were really, really good at it. And our four check was a huge part of our game. And so we wouldn't necessarily say it was the left winger. It was more like F three, which was usually either the center or the left winger. But if it got to like the third period of a game, we would designate a person just to be a little bit more not passive, but a little bit more. Uh, what's the everyone's one? thought processes are quicker. Yeah.
1: You know that guy's the lock. I don't have to be him. I'm going to be one or two not three
0: yeah 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 so we would get so many turnovers but the other thing the the reason why it's as aggressive is because you're locking up on their right winger on that left hand side but your right defenseman is always coming up and almost locking on their left winger as well that's the way that a lot of teams will play it so it's like four guys up and aggressive you have your f1 and your f2 that are doing basically the same thing that f1 and f2 do um and then you have your person locked up on their right winger and the right defenseman locked up on their left winger. And then the lefty was kind of playing center field and it teams had legitimately had to flip pucks out or they would turn pucks over,
1: or put it through the middle and turn it over. Most likely.
0: Yeah. Well, the teams that were good at putting the puck through the middle,
1: would exploit
0: you. They, but but then what? What do you do? Then you just tell your F two, okay, don't be so aggressive, right? And come through the middle, and then right. F one will have to either their D will skate it out, and F one will come back and and uh, and hound that person, uh or you know they the F two would go, and then they would make a play through the middle. But that's a highly highly skilled play. But we would hem teams in all the time and then teams would just get so freaking mad but it was so much fun especially playing at Cornell because with the crowd when you hem teams in that's like when they get really really going then you then offensive zone time and you're just going with the puck with the puck with the puck that's when the ambiance just it just explodes it's unreal
1: the The ambiance
0: huh ambiance (laughs) Beyonce
1: that's uh that reminds me of, uh, your new CEO, CFO, whatever, your, your, Vinny Barra, our, our, both of our cousin. Uh, he sent me something the other day. It was like the top 10 student sections in college hockey. And he told me Western Michigan was better than, uh, than Cornell in that one, but there was others where Cornell was better than Western. No,
0: on that one, he sent it to me too. They just listed it. and it, Oh, it wasn't okay. Cause by I order. said, I
1: didn't see numbers. I was like, I don't see numbers. No, I know. I'm not going to talk ish to him if it's not true. Yeah.
0: He, he sent it to me. He's like, go oh, Western. I'm like, no dude, come on. <laughs> so our producer
1: is trying to pull us
0: apart. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Um, No, but man, when we did the lock and when we did it well and we were disciplined, the only thing is you have to be disciplined with it because it is aggressive. And the other thing, too, and we talked about it a little bit before, you have to be really good when the puck goes away from you of coming back hard through the middle of the ice. Yep. It's it's like such a necessity on the forecheck, and it's something that we hounded on our players all the time. Like, you have to get back. So if you're that guy locking up on the right winger and the puck goes the other way, it's back hard through the middle. Or if the puck comes this way, it's back hard through the middle. If you're the F1 and that defenseman that you were hounding passes the puck, it's back hard through the middle. Always want to take away the most dangerous part of the ice.
1: Have any teams ever been like, Alternating left wing and right wing, like first and third line, would do left wing lock, and second and fourth would do I'm right sure some, wing lock. I'm or sure
0: some have, I'm sure some have. Another another thing that uh, some teams will do is a strong side lock, so not necessarily locking one specific side, but uh, if the puck gets chipped into to one of the corners, they'll lock that winger. Yeah. And then the opposite defenseman will come up and, and gap up on the other winger. So I know there's some teams that do a really good job of doing that too. So, uh, so would
1: that be F1 is going in and forechecking checking hard? F2 immediately goes to the strong side half wall?
0: Yeah. And then f 3 feeds it. I mean, it it's depends. F2 ish, about. whatever it may be. But yeah, one person is going to be locking that strong side. And then the other thing is for F1, so you want to steer that person to the strong side. So you always want the puck to come up the side that you're locking as well. So that's really important for the F1. So like on the left-wing lock, you're trying to steer the defenseman to get the puck to go up that right-winger side where your left-winger is locking. Yeah, so that's that's another big part of the forecheck.
1: Well I mean that goes right back to what we talked about how important the f1 steering is, like him putting the team where he wants them to go, not where they want to go.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, and it's uh if you can if you can be disciplined on the four check that that's tough to play against, but the thing is you have to and it's funny, you talk about systems, any system, it's only as good as the buy-in yeah, it's oh, only totally. as good as the people buying into it. So if you're doing like quote unquote lock, but there's a person that's not disciplined on the lock it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. You need all five players in any type of four check really in unison and doing their role, doing their role to the best of their ability. Because if one person doesn't do their job, it could be if you're playing against a really good team and odd man rush going the other way.
1: Totally. And and for the young guys listening to this, Toph has said this about f- probably five to six times on this specific podcast episode. So straight from an XD one coach's mouth like how important it is to come back hard through the middle. And I can't tell you how many times I talked to scouts as I've been a coach these last two years. And they always notice the guys who back check hard. And it's not them being like, he back checks hard. They're always like, tell me about this guy. And it's always the kids who back check hard. It's really, I mean, it's interesting, but it's obvious. But like, if you want to stand out in a game and you scouts watching or just, you want to be better at hockey. So for like a good reason, like, when you lose a guy or whatever, like you stop and you sprint back to the middle with your stick in front of you. I can't tell you how many turnovers you will cause and just how much, how much better defensively you will be for your team than if you're a guy who kind of lollygags back.
0: Yeah, yeah. because what does that show? When you back check hard, what does that show?
1: Well, it shows you care.
0: 100%, and it, and it, sh- it, it shows that you are not above what your team is doing. Like if you see a guy that doesn't back check, who does he care about?
1: Yeah, himself. Who cares
0: about himself. You, if you show me a guy that or a girl that, that back checks hard – Then they care about the team and they care about adhering to a structure and they care about doing the little things, which once you get to the higher levels, you have to have those. If you want a winning team, you have to have buy in. You have to have players that want to do the little things and want to buy into maybe not doing the glamorous individual thing, but doing the thing that's going to help the team win. So if you can pre-program your your program with people like that, that's recipe for, for winning.
1: And you know who comes to mind who was probably the best at all all time at that is Pavel Datsuk. Oh God! Have you ever watched, I urge everyone listening to this episode right now to look up like Pavel Datsuk back checking or Pavel Datsuk stealing the puck on the back check. Like he was a magician. As soon as the puck would turn over, he'd hit the hooks. He'd immediately start sprinting back. And he always knew the right stick angle to like swoop the puck and swipe the puck and push a guy's elbow. He was unbelievable. And guess what? He also load of points because he got the puck so much from when people think they, that they, he was done is unbelievable.
0: Yeah. He's, I miss him. <laughs> he can still play in the NHL I right now. It. Oh my gosh. He was so good, man. Like when the Red Wings had her going back in the day with him and Zetterberg cause Zetterberg was the same way. Yeah, and they eat. But you know what? And this even goes to this will get a little bit deeper now in terms of like mentoring, how important it is for younger players to have great role models coming up, because who did those guys play with when they were rookies? Steve Eiserman and Sergei Fedorov. Sergei Fedorov might not have been the hardest back checker, but he was always up there. I feel like he was always up there for like the Selkie. Um, yeah, he yeah,
1: yeah, actually he was actually very defensive. Yeah. Which is like
0: no one thinks that. I know. So fast. But how about like Steve and those, that Like that's where they learned that from. So like those two kind of took the torch from, from those two guys. And I mean, that's a huge reason why they were able to do it. And also you got a coach that got people to believe in buying into playing a defensive two way brand of, of hockey, which is what wins hockey games. I, I, how many one dimensional teams have you ever seen win a championship at, at the higher levels?
1: Yeah. None,
0: none, you know? So it's, um, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you have to be able, and as a coach, especially the younger younger ages, those types of things are so important to instill those habits of unselfishness and back check and, and all that kind of stuff because if you can ingrain that into kids' heads how important it is and how important it is to be a good teammate, it's just going to, once you get to the higher levels, it's going to make them more, let's call it marketable to uh, to the scouts that, that are watching them play. It's huge. You have to be able to make plays. You have to be able to produce offense, but we have to be able to do the other things too
1: and in today's world at the highest levels with Corsi c ratings and all the math now and all the stats that go into it like there you could very easily show that a guy who's like a, a a 1b but back checks his ass off and is always hounding the puck and doing this and doing that but that 1a guy is more skilled and more flashy and in the old days it would just be kind of the eye test well now some of those stat things are showing well when 1b is on the ice. He's not as flashy, but your team gets scored on way less and you score way more. So now who do we want to give more money to or who do we want to give that contract to? So like a lot more guys now are going the route of being that that I'm going to do everything I can because it's it's paying off and it's showing and it's becoming because it's showing it
0: wins. Yeah. The the one contract that I think is really, really interesting is the Brandon of contract in Pittsburgh because he's. An energy the, the the person that you're talking about energy guys and they gave him I I'll have to look it up but they gave him like a long contract and typically you give those players short contracts because they got to prove themselves because they haven't proven to put up offense but they gave Tanev that 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 big deal uh, I don't think it was for a ton of money but it was a lot of security and he's gonna be there for a while. Um, and it has freaking worked out for Pittsburgh. He has been unreal for them. So it'll be interesting to see if teams start to value those types of players from a monetary and and contract length standpoint uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think I think it it's probably just like we were talking about earlier with the Blues being a super physical team. And before that, you know, some teams were getting away from it. Whatever wins that year. <laughs> You know or wins the most over the next two, three years, people are gonna to go towards that trend, then something else is gonna replace it. It's just gonna be cyclical, but I mean, I think you know signing players like that that you trust and and do uh, kind of do it all do everything well you you need those as kind of your your brick your your base layer guys, and then you build on top of them
0: yeah, well, I'm looking up Taned's contract right now, so he's one two three four five six years, three point five million dollars. And, uh, he's like a third line center. So value him. But I think the intangibles that he brings, and that's one thing when you're building a team, like really good penalty killer, how important are those fast, relentless hound, Like how important are those types of guys? We even talked about it with the F one, how important the F one is. You can get a few guys that can really hound and really do that type stuff. And it was just interesting that Pittsburgh rewarded him with that much money, uh, as a free agent as that type of role, and it'll be interesting to see moving forward if they if any other teams continue to do that. does this it say kind of what, the first one.
1: What you're looking at, does it say what his face-off percentage is?
0: No, it doesn't. This, I'm just at oh. capfriendly.com.
1: I mean, obviously, we all know how important face-offs are, but I was talking to uh, an NHL Hall of Famer two days ago on the phone, and we were talking about centers, and he was like, Jeff, you don't understand how much value is placed on a guy who can win a lot of draws. Yeah. And He's like, I know you do understand. He goes, I know you do understand, but like you don't understand. Like NHL teams, that is what they want so badly: is a guy who they know they can count on to win the big draws.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, possession is the name of the game right now. And what's the one thing that provides you possession right from the start? And how many are there a game? I mean, I don't even know, but a ton. That's
1: great. That's a great question.
0: <laughs> there, are, I wonder what the average amount of faceoffs per game is. Let's say it's one per minute. So that's sixty faceoffs in a game sixty? I don't know.
1: Interesting. I'm going to take the under on that. I don't know how we look this up. If somebody listening knows how us, we can look this up, please message us. Toast thinking 60. I'm taking the under. You think so? I think way under.
0: I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know either. It's just interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's all those little things, man. I mean, little things are so important nowadays. It's uh, That's what wins you games. Alright, now That's I'm down just, a rabbit hole. Now I want to see this uh this face off wins. It doesn't matter. It doesn't uh I don't know. We'll figure it out next episode. I yeah. to get this going here. Um, but let's get let's get back to the four check. So is there who is one or two people maybe actually you don't watch hockey that much, but maybe one or two people that you played with at the pro level that people might know that you think were unreal on the four check.
1: Antoine Rousseau. F one Antoine Roussel played for Dallas. I've talked about him before on the podcast a long time ago. That I didn't think there was that many people that I could say like always were working harder than me. Antoine Roussel willed himself to the NHL. So impressive, great guy too. Still there? Is he still there? Oh I mean, yeah, you know, he's still playing, man. Yeah, I mean he, he just awesome guy, unbelievable guy, but just his F1 ability to just never stop moving his feet, never, ever, ever, and just be relentless. Like, the definition of relentless, it's why he's in the NHL, why he's made millions of dollars.
0: Well, What what else was so special about him? Was he, like, just in terms of he just never stopped working?
1: Dude, he never. I've never, like... I can't even explain. It. I wish I could have videoed him in practice with his first year pro in, in Providence. Like I've never seen someone work at a hundred, the entire practice and game every shift, a hundred. Like he was like 178 pounds, 185 pounds fighting heavyweights in the AHL and just shocking. And like, I don't even think he's was a good fighter. It was just like, he never stopped. Like it was like, he was like on crack or cocaine or something all the time. He wasn't, <laughs> but like, it was just like, he was like, bah! It was unbelievable, dude. It was unbelievable. What what was he like? Shut up. (laughs) You sure, (laughs) dude? I'm a man. (laughs) I'm a man. Oh,
0: Saving Silverman. Saving Silverman reference. Oh, if you haven't seen that movie, that is. I think that is the most hidden gem, best movie ever.
1: I think that really bonded us as besties. When I, I think it did actually. Saving Silverman actually. I,
0: I want to say the year that we were living together. I don't even. I think we were like, yeah, this movie's on. We I mean, we might yeah. as well watch it. I think I rented whatever. it
1: just randomly, a blockbuster. Is that what I'd it was? Just be a thing.
0: And then and then when we uh, <laughs> and then when we freaking watched it, we were just dying laughing the whole time.
1: Unbelievable. What I, think the,
0: I think the best thing, though, and Uncle Tim probably wouldn't want us uh, sharing this, but uh, we have a uh, a nickname for our Uncle Tim, and it's Jack Black. And uh, I don't think he likes it very much, but so we do have a lot of listeners who, uh, who no enjoy Uncle the Uncle Tim talk. And uh, so Jack Black, if you're picturing Uncle Tim, Jack Black's a good place to start.
1: <laughs> very good place, like a B-plus place. Like it's <laughs> way up there. Like it really is. Same facial – ticks and movements and stuff and he actually i remember he was at a bar downtown in chicago one time and somebody asked him for his autograph thinking he was jack no Black, which is, way yeah oh yeah i remember him telling that story so well, what did He's laura beautiful-
0: say she was was she there
1: I don't remember Laura hates the comparison obviously. <laughs> I know, but it's just Uncle Tim's just so funny with his facial expressions. he's just hilarious and so jack black, so yeah,
0: yeah, I love it, man. All right, well, this got off the rails pretty quick, yep. um, uh, but this was a, this was cool f- I love talking hockey man, talking hockey is is a lot of fun, and it was really good to to pick your brain on some four check stuff here today.
1: Yeah, well, I like I like when we break it down like this because it really like makes you stop and think like a lot more about strategies. Like when we started talking the other day, and you decided like a week ago that you wanted to do a, a podcast on forechecking, I was kind of like, can we do an entire episode on forechecking? But you know, as we started talking more, it made me think about more things and more things and more things. So it's really good. I, I was glad we did this.
0: Yeah. Well, one other thing I think before we go that we should mention is uh thoughts and prayers out there to Jay Bo, Mr. Man. Wow, what a scary, scary incident the other night with him on the bench and um uh, hopefully he's okay. So thoughts and prayers to him and his family and you know, him going down like that, losing consciousness and, and seeing the blues players uh I don't wanna say freak out, but they were I mean they were adamant that they needed to get trainers over there and stuff and you remember the the rich peverleys and you remember the yuri fishers and what happened with them and it, it just kind of goes to show i wanted to talk about it because it just goes to show how important trainers are and 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 those trainers that are there because literally i would imagine that the trainer ray borelli who's the the blues trainer of, who's very well known in in the hockey world um they did an amazing job to make sure that he freaking stayed alive. I mean, who knows yeah. what would have happened. So, um, should mention thoughts and prayers out to him and his family, because that's just puts things into perspective and, uh, you never know when it can happen and, and hopefully he's okay. Sounds like he's going to be okay, but it's uh, that was a scary moment, man.
1: Yeah. Extremely scary. And like you said, uh, unbelievable job by both NHL teams and their staffs and doctors to, to, to take care of him the way they did and I mean, keep them alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, let's end it on a positive. End it on a positive. End it on a positive. So thank you to our listeners. As always, you guys are the best. And, uh, we, with this episode, will hit over 250,000 quarter of a million downloads of this podcast. And, wow. Uh, it's just it's, – it's very, very humbling and very, very cool that uh, you guys want to spend some time with us and, and hopefully you can bond if you're a parent with your kid. That, those are the best emails that I get, honestly, are the ones where people email us or, or message us and say, hey, like this is a little bit of a bonding experience. We listen to you guys on the way to the rink and it's a way for m- me and my kid to, to talk hockey. Um, and they usually say you're a clown and <laughs> – I'm kidding. Uh, they, they do think that you are the talent though for sure and bring – <laughs> And bring it, bring it to a different level, um, but yeah, I mean that's just so cool. We want to thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we 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 make a, I don't know, I don't know, maybe people skip over it when we start saying it, but it's really important for us to to thank everybody that that has chipped in to making this thing to where to where it has gone. So thank you for continuing to listen. We'll continue to bring on the guests and everything like that and continue to have some fun doing this. But we appreciate your guys' support and uh, we'll continue to give it all we have for this podcast. And we're doing this again at at 1145 Eastern at night. (laughs) We want to make sure that we're getting these out there for you guys. At least it's not a Sunday night this time. We're doing it on a Thursday night, but uh, because you're on the road. Uh, your time is a little bit limited but uh, thank you, thank you, thank you and we hope you all have a good week
1: Love you dad